If you've got a Bible with you, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. I've got to apologise for taking a wee while to get through it all. I've been told I'm a bit of a Mr. Snail, so I'm apologising. I'll try and speed up though. So Ephesians chapter 1, and I'll just read from verse 1. But tonight the the verses we're going to really look at are verses 8 to 10. But Ephesians chapter 1. I'll start from verse 3. Paul says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Now, I'm going to just highlight this bit from verse 7 because there is a kind of a rollover between the verses. But from verse 7, Paul says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Thank God for his word to us. Just come and pray and just seek his blessing. Father, you are our sovereign God, and we pray that tonight as we come to your word that you'll help us just to gain understanding of the greatness of your purposes for us, of the way that you long to bless us so richly and mightily. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Jensen. You're already leading the worship from up there, so that's very good of you. A nice wee amen. Following in your father's footsteps. <laughs> okay, while we were living in, in Shetland, I was once asked to go and visit a, a lady living in a care home in one of the, the more remote rural areas. Now, the areas actually spell walls, but to everybody in Shetland, it's was. Uh, it's the Waz care home. So the situation was that this, this lady, a lovely Christian lady then in her 80s, that she and her brother, they were born and brought up in one of the, remote, the most remote crofts that I ever encountered during my time there. And as their parents had, they lived there all of their days. Once old age took its toll, both of them went into the same care home at the same time. And this lady, her brother, just a a week or so earlier, had been taken into hospital. And the reason that I was there was because he had died. And as they were both Christians and had both been until it closed, involved in a very rural Baptist church. So I was asked to, to visit and try and bring some comfort. And I'll never forget the wonderful smile on that lady's face as I walked into her room. I'll never forget the joy that she expressed 
in knowing that her brother had gone to home to be with the Lord. And all she could talk about was how good God had been to them throughout her life. And in addition to that, what luxury and plenty she was now living in, in that care home. And just a week later, she died. You know, she ministered to me much more in that little room than I was able to minister to her. But a few weeks later, I think because I'd shared a bit of this, some of the congregation in Lerwick Baptist took us along to visit the little croft that was run down, wrecked by this time, but the little croft that she and her brother had lived their lives in. It took a while to get there. It took an hour or so along largely bumpy little single-track roads. You know, that brother and sister, however, they'd never had a car. Their little croft was in a, a bay at the foot of a very steep, rocky hill, of which there are many in Shetland. And whenever they needed to pick up supplies of any kind, usually they used to have to go in their little rowing boat. The water that they used flowed in a pipe down from that hill behind them. They had no electricity. They survived on lamps and candles, etc. They largely grew their own vegetables. They had a cow, a few sheep, chickens. They dug for fuel, for peat. It didn't cost them anything, but I'll tell you, it is back-breaking work. So you see, when they got their pension, they felt they'd never been so well off. That was riches to them. Then they went to live in a care home that had running water and electricity. That really was the lap of luxury as far as they were concerned. But you know, here's the way I was told they used to pass their their evenings in that little lonely croft. They used to read their Bible. And then the other book that came their way. And they used to listen every night to the battery-operated radio. That was their prize and joy. But here's what those who knew them relatively well shared with me that really amazed me. That though they hardly ever wandered from that remote corner of Shetland. Yet they were people who had a great knowledge of God and his word, and vitally, they lived it. It wasn't just head knowledge. They lived it out, for they were both incredibly wise, gracious, loving people. But not even just that. They were also incredibly well-informed about the far corners of the world, about life and politics, about the challenges, the big issues that the world faced during their lifetime. For you see, although they stayed physically in that little croft in Shetland, yet that radio took them right around the world and into the very corridors of power. You see, they didn't allow their physical circumstances to restrict them or to define them. Rather, they had a life perspective that in terms of this world's understanding defied their life circumstances. How much more so even was this true of the Apostle Paul as he wrote this letter here to the Ephesians? For you see, I think we need to remind ourselves that Paul wrote this letter while under house arrest in Rome, chained, handcuffed to a Roman soldier with practically, physically 
his future prospects looking far from rosy. And yet, here, in just these opening verses we've looked at so far in Ephesians, here, Paul looks back to God's plan before time began in verse 4. He rejoices in verse 7 in what God has done for us in Jesus Christ and what we can then experience now because of that, that we've been redeemed and so we are forgiven. And then in the the verses we're focusing on now tonight, particularly in verse 10, Paul looks, looks forward to the end of time, to the fulfillment of God's plan in Christ. And this is what we're going to move on to look at in a a minute or so. But for now, I, I just want to say here, may this be an encouragement to all of us, to every one of us, that no matter what our circumstances, no matter how challenging, even overwhelming, the physical circumstances we are facing tonight might be, yet in the midst of them, if we seek God, if we remember that He loved us and chose us before time began, if we remember that such is the depth of His love for us, that He gave Himself for us on the cross in Christ to win our forgiveness. And if we remember that when He brings this time to its fulfillment, that He is going to bless us in Jesus Christ far, far beyond what we can now possibly even imagine. If we remember this, if we've got the spiritual maturity to begin to see life from this perspective, then that will totally transform not only the way we see life, but also the way that we deal with whatever life brings our way. But key to this, to this kind of, of perspective on life, also key to understanding, to to unlocking what Paul's actually saying in these verses here, is mystery. What Paul has to say here about mystery, with everything else in these verses revolving around this concept of mystery. So let's open this up then, beginning where I believe we must, by looking first at the meaning of mystery. It's here for me right at the very outset that things begin to get interesting. Because, you see, what we understand by mystery and what the the Bible means when it speaks of mystery are, in fact, rather different. For you see, in the Bible, a mystery isn't a puzzle that's waiting to be solved. Or even there is something that we can solve in and of ourselves. Rather, in the Bible, a mystery is a secret that can only be known when God reveals it. Got that? Well, let's move on then to the heart of this mystery that Paul focuses on here. And it is, of course, the heart of mystery, the mystery of the Bible, is Jesus. As Paul says in verse 9, He made known to us the mystery of His will, which, of His will, according to His good purpose, which He purposed in Christ. Let me just share with you here some some comments by Sinclair Ferguson. This is what he says. The revelation of the Old Testament functioned 
like scaffolding. It was temporary. But it took its shape from what God had planned in eternity and was building behind the scaffolding of Old Testament history. The coming of Christ. When Christ came, the scaffolding had fulfilled its purpose. It has now been dismantled. Now the mystery behind the scaffolding stands revealed. And we now understand why the scaffolding was shaped as it was. It was Christ-shaped. His coming has been God's purpose all along. And you got it. Jesus Christ stands at the heart of the mystery of God's will. For it was in him that we were chosen before time began. It is in him that by faith we are redeemed, saved, and can experience forgiveness. And it is in Christ that at the last day, as we're told here in verse 10, that all things will find their fulfillment. And all of the Old Testament, with its laws, its sacrifices, with the prophets and the history of God's people, all of this was preparing the way, was pointing the way to the Jesus who perfectly reveals and fulfills the mystery of God's will. In all the failure, in all the inadequacy of that Old Testament revelation, it was pointing the way to Jesus. We're moving quickly. I can assure you it won't last, though. As we move on now from the meaning of mystery, the heart of mystery, to look now at the understanding of mystery. And that is, how do we gain understanding of this mystery that has Jesus at its heart? Well, we're told here in verse 7, running on to verse 8, that this is only possible by the grace of God. That it's the grace, the same grace that moved Jesus, moved God to come to this earth in Christ, to redeem us, to pay the price of our sin and so win our forgiveness. That it's by the same grace of God that we gain insight, that we gain understanding into the mystery, into the secret of his will fulfilled in Christ. Just listen again to what it says here in verse 7 and 8. First of all, verse 7 that we concentrated on last week. That is, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. See, that's the link. Then on to verse 8, that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. You see, it is. It's the same grace again that God expressed in saving us and forgiving us that then leads him to give us wisdom and understanding, to give us insight into the mystery of what he has done and will do in Jesus Christ. This mystery that the human mind in and of itself has not got the capacity, cannot stretch to take in. This, that God would do, could do this for us. That's grace. But the two words that, that Paul uses here, though, wisdom and understanding, are interesting and, and closely related 
words. Because you see, both of them carry within them both the idea of theoretical head knowledge, but also of practical application. That is of insight that then spills over into what we do that then affects the way that we live, with the emphasis being more on the the theoretical with that first word, wisdom, more on the practical with understanding. But the important thing is that with both, there is a partnership. That with God, theory and practice always then belong together, which is well reflected, I think, in a well-known Bible verse, Proverbs 9, verse 10. You know it well, the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you see, fear of the Lord, when it's used in the Bible, fear is about respect. It's about awe. And it's about an awareness of the need to live in submission to, to be obedient to such a great God. So a knowledge of God then, fear, that then affects the way that we live, leads to a changed life. This is where wisdom begins. But knowledge, head knowledge, in and of itself, certainly does not make a wise person. I mean, we've probably all known people who've exemplified the the popular saying of being all brains and no common sense. Well, the turbocharged version of this is the highly intelligent person who refuses to acknowledge God. For someone can be a genius, but if they refuse to acknowledge God, they are not wise. In the Bible's terms, they are not wise. Because how can it be wise to live your life without God's guidance, God's love, God's peace, God's joy, without God's help and strength? How can it be wise to ignore God and so face life, death, and judgment without Him? But there are some other points I I think I have to make here before we move on, and that is that for too long in the church, we have valued theoretical knowledge in and of itself. That if someone has a wide knowledge of the teaching of the Bible, you know, if they can discuss and debate theology, especially obscure areas of theology, then that's enough for them to be seen by us as mature, as, as wise Christians, even if in their lives They show little sign of the character, little sign of the grace of Christ. You know, that is wrong. And it's so damaging to the development of Christian character and therefore to the life and reputation of the church. Because it doesn't matter how much knowledge someone has. If they don't go on to apply it, if they don't go on to live it, then they are not wise And they are not spiritually mature. Second point that I would like to make here is that that remember, this kind of, of wisdom and understanding, this insight into the mystery of God's provision for us in Christ, this is a gift of God's grace. This is an expression of his undeserved love towards the unworthy and the ungrateful towards people like me 
and like you. Now, this opens up a, a number of questions like, why does God choose the people that he does to reveal this mystery to? Well, we looked at this earlier in this series, though, of course, no man will be able to give a final definitive answer to this. But let me say this. One thing that this does tell us for sure is that we cannot by ourselves, by virtue of our intellect, our intelligence, we cannot grasp this mystery. We cannot grasp the secret of Christ. It takes God to reveal it to us. If we seek Him, He is eager to be found. Yes, He is. But only God can open our hearts, open our minds, open our spirits to the secret of who Jesus really is. And I've had experience of this, as I'm sure many of you have. Experience of intelligent people, highly intelligent people, who just can't seem to grasp spiritual truth. One incident that stands out in my mind is trying once to share the gospel with a member of, of my family. And I was using Isaiah 53 trying to point out how what the prophet said there was actually fulfilled so many centuries later in, in Jesus, in the death of Jesus. I was using verses like verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. But this intelligent woman just seemed unable to grasp that this was all fulfilled by Christ's death on the cross and, and, and the incredible significance of this. You see, only God can open hearts and minds to the mystery of Jesus. Well, there's just one final area I want to cover tonight with you, and that is the fulfillment of mystery, referred to here in verse 10. To be put into effect, it says, when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Now, obviously, what this is speaking of is of what God is going to do in Christ. At the end of time, when this time we now live in is complete, and time as we know it now draws to a close, that he's going to bring all things, gather in all things together in heaven and earth under one head, even Jesus Christ. So all things then are going to be gathered together to acknowledge Christ's lordship, under Christ's headship, to acknowledge him as head. That is the whole of creation. Both the spiritual forces of good and evil, all of humanity, including those who willingly acknowledge Christ as Savior and Lord in this life, and those who refuse to do so, are all going to be brought to the point where either willingly or unwillingly they are going to acknowledge Jesus Christ for who he is, as Lord and head. This will be followed by judgment. And then those who in life acknowledge God willingly, they will live and reign with him. They will live and reign in a united heaven and earth. In a heaven and earth now restored by God to be at last all that it was created to be restored 
to the perfection, to the glory that was always God's intention. For you see, at that point then, the power of evil and sin that's ravaged creation since Adam's first sin will be over. Then, the time, as Paul puts it in Romans 8, 22, when the whole of creation is groaning as in the pains of childbirth because of the impact of sin, that time will end. And together under Christ, united in Christ, will be a restored, a perfect heaven and earth. And there, we will be with him. Living in perfect relationship with God, and so because of that, in perfect relationship with one another. There we will be, knowing the blessing, knowing the fullness, the richness of life, the peace and joy that God alone can bring for all eternity. So, you know, forget about the idea that's put around about wings and of sitting aimlessly on a a cloud, strumming a harp for all eternity. That's this world's caricature of the life that is to come. And it's a caricature without any biblical substance. It's designed to mock God and the life that God brings in order to turn people away from Him. But that is not the life God has for those who love Him. No, that life will be life at its fullest, at its richest, at its most varied. A quality of life that is so far beyond anything we can know or experience now as to be for us totally unimaginable. Your life at its very best now is nothing in comparison to what God has for those who love Him. This is the mystery of Christ. This is the secret of Christ. This is the gospel. This is what God has for His people. And this is the fulfillment that in Jesus Christ we are heading towards. I tell you, understand this. What God has for you in Christ. Seek to grasp this, the richness, the fullness of what God has for you in Jesus. And then roll in with this, that he's loved you since before time began. And what he's done for you, what he's given for you in Christ, on the cross, grab hold of this. And you will have, I tell you, a very different perspective on life and on death. And you will begin to live a very different Christian life. You'll begin to live a life that will give your witness so much power. Today, God wants each person here to know the mystery, the secret of Jesus. He wants you to know the glory and the wonder of His life now, and He wants you to know of all that is yet to come. I want to say to you, Tonight, take hold of that mystery. Take hold of that love now by faith and begin to explore the glory and fullness of what God has for you. Don't live a diminished, short-changed Christian life. Now open your mind. Open your heart. Open your spirit. And by faith, Take hold of all that God has for you. Let's come and let's pray together.
Father, we just want to thank you that what you plan for us is so, so far beyond anything that we can imagine. Lord, what you have for your people, Lord, it, it cannot be put into human words. You long to bless us and you want us to know something of that blessing here and now. You want us by faith to trust in you through Jesus Christ. And then you want us by faith to live the life that you have for us. A life that is totally transformed. Lord, be with us. Lead us into this life in the power of your spirit, we pray. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.